for those who fish. This is the Drake Cast, a voice for fly fishing culture and conservation. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. Could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. I have the magazine here. I took some notes. Oh, cool. This week, we sit down with the Drake Magazine founder and editor, Tom Bai, to talk through the latest print issue of the Drake, which apparently has a new tagline. First question is, when I started the podcast, I don't know, six years ago or something like that, it said, the Drake, and then under it, it said, for those who fish. It now says, the Drake, and then under it, for those who fly fish. When was that change made? That change was made late at night when I was just kind of curious how it would look there. And like many decisions made with the magazine, there might be an assumption that there was a lot of thought put into it, and there was not. It's just a last-minute change. (laughs) I like it. It f***s up the tagline for the podcast, but Uh I'm going to have to re-record it. (laughs) Yeah, it it screws up a lot of things, all my stickers, everything, but I don't (laughs) think I'm going to bother changing any of those. (laughs) Tell me what we got going on on the cover. That is Jeff Courier. One of my good friends from my years in Jackson, and um, I don't typically do a grip and grin necessarily, but I just love the focus on that pike's head. And I hadn't really done a pike or muskie on the cover. And uh, Austin Tracer is the photographer. He's a Montana guy that went on a trip with Jeff a couple years back, and, and I just loved it for fall. Yeah, I mean, this last weekend, I was pike fishing. And uh, especially in Wisconsin, I think the muskie overshadows the pike. But uh, when the pike are biting, I'd rather go catch 10, like, 25 inches than one 33-inch muskie. It's one of those fish that uh, if you're just starting out in fly fishing and you're in a shallow lake, you can see them really well and you can see the take and there's so much about fishing for them that is visual and so i i just love them as a fish i mean they they are the enemy in an awful lot of states there's probably a half a dozen or so states that will pay you to catch them and kill them bring them back here in colorado there's at least three or four where you know it's worth 20 bucks or something if you bring back a head just a note here Pike have a really strange native range, but it basically goes from Vermont across the Great Lakes over to Nebraska with a couple outlying native populations. But most notably, they're not native to Colorado and western states like Washington and Oregon, where they like to feed on samonids and other endangered species. So in many places that you catch pike, you're not only encouraged to keep them, but you're paid to do so. They're unbelievable sport fish and... Yes, it's not. They're not as difficult as muskie to catch, but I don't know how big that one is. But if you're in a lake that has those size fish, it's definitely going to be a, a fun day for you. Flipping in. Let's let's dive into it. Let's do. There's the table of contents, some ads, and then the letter from the editor, which begins as follows. On a recent trip to British Columbia, I hooked a steelhead. The steelhead then became unhooked. This happens. But the encounter nonetheless left me very excited, so excited, in fact, that after semi-sprinting down to the next run, 
I entered the river several yards higher than I should have and attempted to wade through rapids. I was incapable of wading. I was not successful. I mean, I seriously all of a sudden just thought, what is is the water coming up? Uh, is there a rain event somewhere? <laughs> I mean, none of it made any sense. It was just me being too excited and trying to walk down the middle of a river when I should have stayed on the bank and gone down <laughs> to the next run. And like I say in the piece, it wasn't even a... It was like the first time I'd fished this. We've been camped in that area for the last couple of days. But you hook a fish, uh, especially a wild summer steelhead, and you, your mind kind of doesn't take into account everything as much as it normally would. And so I got excited. But those are the sorts of uh, things that happened. And it's funny, yesterday I got an email from a, someone in the industry who said, hey, you forgot one. How about not locking your rods into your rod carrier? It's just one of the bonehead things you do when you're when you're excited. And um, I just share with him, yeah, I didn't include that in the piece, but I did do that twice in the last six months. In fairness, I shut the back, but the thing didn't lock, and it's a very bumpy road, so it only took a couple miles. And I didn't even like it. Didn't hit me while I was driving. I got out to fish this creek, and all my rods are gone. So I just start laughing, just like, oh my God. And I raced back to where I started. Uh was in a remote area where I'm the only one that could have driven over them, and I did. So any rod manufacturers that'll be getting these in the mail, that's that was the cause of that. <laughs> <laughs> but we get excited. <laughs> and and what do you what are you saying about the fact that we get excited when we fish? Well, it, it it's your brain just kind of shuts off except for maybe the feeding fish that are around you. And suddenly you become incapable of tying a simple knot. And it's just, it's part of the sport. You just get so excited that your, your brain shuts off and you probably have enough time to carefully tie on a fly or change the tippet or do the things that you know you should do. But instead you just, you make the cast, you break the fish off because you didn't take the time. To retie a knot or something, and it's a, it's a, it's a funny part of the sport. Just shows how exciting it can be. Story about me restringing a rod like four times, and the just as the sun is setting was that also happened. <laughs> Next page, we got thousand words because a picture is worth it. What do we got going on here? That's a shot by Hansi Johnson. He's a he's a uh, Minnesota photographer, and I'm. Not sure where it is. Sometimes I ask people where, and even if they tell me, sometimes I don't list it. But I just loved it. It's just such a beautiful fall shot of the trees. And then dude out there in his canoe with his dog going fishing. Because Tom didn't know the story, I called up the photographer, Hansi Johnson, to get some more info on that photo. So the shot is of uh, my friend Matt Wyke and his dog, Bonnie. And they're in a solo canoe out in the Boundary Waters up in northern Minnesota. And it's a late fall day, probably like, I don't know, early October. And the colors are just booming. And it's actually on South Lake. And we're actually going for late season lake trout. So 
in the kind of late season, the lake trout go from the deep water to the shallow water. And, and that's one of the few times you can kind of target them with the fly rod. So we were sneaking around looking for lake trout. And did you find them? Yeah, we found them. We didn't find a lot. It's getting harder to find cold water. You know, the lake trout season, it's ending. The water's not getting cold enough as the season stays the same. The water temps are staying warm. So you're not seeing the uh, kind of that migration happening as, as consistently as you had in the past. So we did catch some, though, which was great. But we had to work harder for them than, than usual. Are you just blind casting? You got a fish finder? What's going on there? Yeah, mainly blind casting. So working kind of like on those those glaciated lakes where you have like that deep cold water lakes, but you have a lot of like broken rubble and structure and scree that kind of has been deposited after the glaciers you know, have gone by. But you're looking for kind of like isolated rocks and outcroppings like that in probably eight to you know 12 feet of water and casting toward the structure. So you're blind casting, but you're kind of casting over water that you know probably holds fish. You know, casting streamers with sink tip lines and just slowly stripping back. And it's always fun to watch because a lot of those lakes are so extremely clear. You can actually see sort of that that shadow line where you're going from, you know, the visibility that you have to darkness and the trout seem to just sort of hover at that dark level. So you kind of let your fly dangle over into that and let it sort of hang there for a bit and twitch it and watch it. And the, the trout will just kind of come rocketing out of the shadows and just, wow, you know, eat the fly. It's a little tedious, but man, it's worth it when you get a nice big chunky laker on because they just really pull hard. So it's just a, it's a fun fish to catch on a fly rod. And you were just back up there. The season has changed. The lakes were now frozen. What were you doing? Can you tell me about this last weekend? Yeah. So, you know, when the early ice comes on, the uh, pike are kind of the things that we like to target at that point, just because lake trout season doesn't open until you know early January. So it's fun to go up into the boundary waters and poke around and find, you know, where the ice is the safest and, you have to find your friends that have good ice tolerance <laughs> because sometimes you get in spots where you're like, yeah, we got to kind of shimmy across this. But with that early ice, the pike are still sort of hanging in those shallow weed lines and areas where the minnows are there or there's like spawning Cisco. And if you can find those spots and those pike are kind of stacked up there, we'll cut, you know, big holes and uh, either spear for them or just sight fish and jig for those, you know, through the ice, which uh, is really, really fun too. Next, we have the letters to the editor from readers of the mag and listeners of the pod. My favorites in this issue being about typos in the magazine. One about using the word baklava, a sweet treat from the Middle East in the place of balaclava. You know, those face covering masks favored by white nationalists and mosquito terrorized anglers. There was another great letter calling Tom out for misspelling the word Betis. There are some people who take their Latin bug names very seriously. We we all know these sorts of people. <laughs> yeah. They're somewhat obnoxious to be around, but part of the ecosystem. I've never been a, a fan. People ask me what the a Latin name is. I don't, I barely know what the other name is, right? But it's uh, copy editing for free. Unfortunately, it's usually after the magazine comes out. So, but the, it makes for some comedy i've had much worse ones i mean i, I spelled john Girak's name wrong on the front of the on the cover one time so that was that was maybe the personal low for that <laughs> we're getting into scuttlebutt rumor humor news and reviews yes 
The first one here, if you're not a college football fan, probably goes over your head, but I just took the idea of these college football teams switching conferences to other parts of the country, and I thought, what if I could do that with rivers or fisheries around the country? Yeah, I mean, I I kind of get it. Like, I I understand (laughs) the college football teams, like, West Coast teams are now part of the Big Ten. And I get, like, the joke, but I also (laughs) have to imagine that the number of people that are really into fly fishing and that are really into college sports is, like, I mean, you already have this very small number with fly fishing specific. And then (laughs) why further narrow it with so much of your content? And then to even go a step further at times with your Beavers-specific stuff, like... This magazine is actually produced just for the two dozen Oregon State Beavers fans that are out there (laughs) that also happen to fly fish. But it was really just a way to highlight cool fishers that maybe some other people weren't aware of. (laughs) When you own the magazine, I guess you can do what you want. Next, there's a heartwarming tale about cleaning up Denver's South Platte River. It was an important ruling and a decision because it limits the amount of what polluters are able to legally put into the river to oversimplify it. Uh, next piece about the keys by our friend Joe Dayhut. Yes. Um, and I never knew anything about this since it's just about the crab traps that break loose and they're not able to be recovered and they'll still collect live animals in there. And, and they're called ghost traps. And as Joe points out, that is a really important event that takes place down there to remove these traps, but also kind of like the story before, it just highlights a local event that can happen to help clear up your waters. And in this case, it's salt water and these ghost traps and they make it into a fun event. Uh, We got a piece by Zach Matthews about sargassum, which is a weed that's clogging up the Caribbean. I mean, it's like a natural thing, but that seems to be growing at unnatural rates. And the piece left me wondering, like, is it overall a good or a bad thing? Or is it just like one of these things that is that we're going to learn how to deal with? Probably the latter. They are healthy. They protect a lot of baby fish out in the open ocean. And they serve as a nursery for a lot of small fish. As Zach says in the piece, tarpon love them. But it just never used to span the entire Atlantic it used to be kind of a standalone out in the mid-Atlantic. And and when you get this stuff washing up on beaches throughout the Caribbean, it's a huge hassle to try to remove them. Um, but like I said, it, it's probably a larger effect of global warming as so much of these topics are. But right now it's mainly just a big nuisance and it does smell. I think Zach points that out. But not the weed itself, but the fish are trapped in it. But it's something that we'll have to figure out how to work with. And there can be, it can attract tarpon. So <laughs> there's there's pluses to it. So keep your eyes peeled. <laughs> right, right. The next piece gives credit to Raul Guevara, an Alabama-based veteran, for the volunteer work he's done with the kids through the Mayfly Project. Thanks for your work, Raul. The next one is about the world casting competitions in Norway and a beer that's spelled A-A-S-S, which is great. (laughs) Yes, it is. I mean, I personally hate competition fishing, 
but the casting competition, I guess, is not. I don't have anything against it. What 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 are your thoughts on casting competitions? I kind of thought the same as you. I mean, I we don't tend to cover fly fishing competitions. Not a big fan of those casting competitions. It's kind of like some people. No offense, fly tires, but you just get so into fly tying and so into casting that you forget to actually go fishing, or that that becomes the emphasis and. You saw it a lot with a lot of the spay claves and things like that that were around it and people that participated in those and would kind of play inside. It's just like, did these guys ever fish? And it's like, I have no idea, but they're really good at casting. But the line in here that caught my eye was the longest single-headed cast that day was 187 feet. I mean, that's almost a hockey rank. It's that's unbelievable. That's a single-handed cast for for people that struggle to get it 30 40 feet you're talking about almost 200 it's it's unbelievable the other thing i thought was really really cool in here was maxine mccormick who we'd also written about a lot when she was really young you know 10 11 12 years old and started participating in these casting competitions but she shot a perfect score in accuracy perfect and it's never been done by man or woman at any competitions and so I, I felt like that was pretty impressive as well so go maxine yeah that's awesome one last thought on the casting competitions the last line is some of us just can't seem to stop chasing the singular sensation of a perfect loop coming off the tip of our rod and i guess i felt that with like spay casting a little bit but i'm not a great caster and so like the singular sensation of a fish eating my fly is what i'm chasing but right. I suppose right. if you get to that level, like maybe one day I'll be casting in a way that I'm chasing that feeling. I'm with you that, that it's way more important for me to catch fish. But when I'm fishing with people that can throw that tight loop every single time and across the river, it's it's impressive. And it's functional. There's a reason that people try to do it. It is just for looks. The last scud piece is about the American Sport Fishing Association, the ASA, which is basically a lobbying group for fishermen and companies that sell fishing gear. And the article asks why the ASA is still supporting the use of lead in fishing products. Tom wrote it. I don't think it's a practical argument. I think they know that it's coming. I think most uh, anglers have moved on. I like it. Let's head on to the tippets. And we won't spend much time on these essays, but... We need to talk about the first one, though. Yeah. Tell me about this story. I, I like getting into this kind of back half of the magazine. It's like, there's a lot of death. There's a lot of loss. Wasn't planned to be that way, but there's um, good writing in this one particularly involved. So this Sean Foley, who wrote this, um, he's an assistant U.S. attorney in, in Kansas City. And he sent this to me, like all these Tippet essays, they just come in. You know, I don't assign them and I'm read what the story is about father losing his young son. And it hit me hard. And I have to imagine the difficulty it is in writing that. And I, I shared with him, as I've said before, oftentimes the very best writing comes when you're either very happy or very sad. And, and so it is very hard, but it's also sometimes it's just a way of healing for the person that went through it. And I think oftentimes it provides something to readers who have gone through something similar as well. 
and this was a particularly well done piece and I thought it took a lot of courage to write it. I don't have anything to add on that. It's, it, you got to read it to get it. Is there too much death in the issue, Adler? Is that where you're trying to get that? No, no. I, I think especially <laughs> for fall as the seasons change. All the best to Sean and his family. Speaking of seasons changing and coming to an end, next is a great essay called Autumn Madness by a man with a great name, Barry Woods. And it's about making the most of the time before winter sets in. I really like this line. And so for those living on the edge of the Atlantic, I say get out there and enjoy this moment. The best fishing of the year is upon us, and you will need these memories to get you through what follows. Especially when you have those, you're far enough north that it's getting dark at 4.30. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, that, and that last push of the year is oftentimes some of the best fishing you find. So I thought he did a great job of writing that. More death in the next one. That's why I said it. Yeah, I guess I didn't think about it with so much with Jeff's piece because his father had, had died few years before, and it was just about going through and dealing with his stuff. But I do think it's something that every fly angler wrestles with. Like, am I ever going to use these flies again? This book, this rod, that, you know, just such a massive gear closet. Um, but he just makes the point that, yeah, the memories may be the more important part in the end, but sometimes you need to hang on to some of the stuff to remind you of those memories. As simple as that sounds, I thought it was a very valid way to put it. Great little piece about smallmouth, uh, especially mm-hmm. out west where they're not always so welcome, but are worthy quarry. Correct. I love fishing for smallmouth. They are just dumb enough for me. And like, <laughs> you can, there's still so much water that isn't like overpressured for smallmouth fishing, whereas like the really, really good trout water, for the most part, those fish have all seen a lot of flies. That's a fair statement. The aspect of the story that really caught me, and I maybe I just haven't done enough smallmouth fishing to really know this or or notice it or think about it, but just the kind of water that they'll sit in that a trout never would. And he nails it. I'm I'm the person that would go out there and just look for good trout holding water and spec and the obvious spots is where they'd be, but they just they don't need the current, they don't need the depth, they don't need the temperature, they don't there's a lot of things that they can survive in and thrive in apparently where a, a trout would never be found and it, it does open your eyes when you're fishing a river for them the next essay is about what to do with the family farm when your parents die in this case there was a creek running through the property so the kids turned it into an airbnb the piece is about the positive reaction and community building that came from allowing fishing on what previously had been posted as private property Next one was a story that I really connected with by Stephen Sautner. He's from, I think, Jersey. He's written a couple books. I really like his piece. Can you give me, you know, like the Sparknotes version of what he's advocating for? Yeah, just if you're a really great fisherman, you know how to go out and get 50 fish, maybe don't. That's basically the moral of his piece here. And he describes it by how he went and took these steps to become a better angler and it really hit home to me in part because I've I haven't participated in these kind of events so often but I I have guided in a number of these sorts of fundraisers that oftentimes start out as everyone kind of just having a good time and but inevitably over time that those sorts of events attract very competitive people and they'll sometimes catch 80 trout in a day and be disappointed because 
they didn't win or whatever the case may be. And some of them are just incredibly skilled at catching every fish in, in the river. And, and Stephen's point is just like, hey, just because you have that skill set doesn't mean that that's going to bring more enjoyment to your day by going out there and getting like, what is the difference between the 30th fish and the 50th fish? And I think he does a really good do- job of laying it out there. And the people out there with those skill sets know who they are. And he talks about some of the other things that bring joy along a river other than catching that 50th fish, whatever the case may be. For sure. And I think we all go through the period in our life when we uh, judge our self-worth based on how good of an angler we are. And hopefully you get over that hump and then can enjoy the hatch, slow down, string up your rod properly and catch a couple fish and move on, you know, that sort of thing. What he wrote there is that there's a lot of, especially over social media, it has often been that this younger generation is so into catching the more fish or the biggest fish or whatever. To me, that's much more of a stage of your fishing than it is a age thing. And and some people will move on to that stage where they can relax and don't need to let catch a lot when they're in their teens or twenties. And some people maybe not to learn, but that, that really, I think is just a process you go through as a angler, much less, uh, you know, it's something that only 20 somethings do or whatever. The next piece is about a guy who loses a sentimental bracelet in the middle of absolute nowhere, only to be reconnected with it months later. Moving on from the tippets, we have an essay devoted to redfish in the red spread until we make it to our first feature. But if you've picked up a copy of the magazine before, you'll know that in order to get this far, you'll have to flip through an advertisement or two. The same is true with the podcast. This episode is brought to you in part by the Adventure Guides at the Eleven Experience. Picture this. You're in the Bahamas, the sun's setting behind you, and you see a big tarpon roll. The tide is coming in, so you know, we're anchored up. We're in a deep spot. But the chef says it's time for dinner. What do you do? Well, if you're on an adventure with the Eleven Experience... I made a cast, and I stripped out some line, and my line was going out towards the mangrove with the tide, so I... I just walked into the dining room with my rod, sat down at my dinner, and I was holding my rod in one hand and eating a filet mignon steak with the other. Then I got a hit, setting the hook from the dining room table. (laughs) The line's going out the door, out the back of the boat, and we can hear this big tarpon jumping in the distance. That's really cool. That was fun. Redefine surf and turf with the Eleven Experience. For a complete list of their operations worldwide, visit E-L-E-V-E-N.com experience.com. And as always, ever since the very beginning, this episode is sponsored by our good friends at Scott Fly Rods. The other day, I got on the phone with Amy Hazel, the co-owner of Deschutes Angler in Maupin, Oregon. Where we fish for steelhead and beautiful rainbow trout. But when Amy isn't chasing Samonids, she's in the middle of the South Pacific. I host trips to Christmas Island. And it was on these trips that... I fell in love with Scott Flyrod. Because... They're light, and it feels like you're casting a 10-weight when you're actually throwing a 12-weight line and casting the GTs. If you want to bag a GT, which, I mean, come on, we all do, you got to bring out the big guns. You're walking the flats, and all of a sudden your guide starts going... And 
you look up two black shadows just moving at about 20 miles an hour on the edge of a big flat. And of course your heart is just beating out of your chest. You have one chance to get that fly in front of them. When you only got one shot, make sure you're using the best and the lightest tools out there. Check out the new Sector and the rest of the Scott Quiver at scottflyrod.com. And we're back to our conversation with Tom Bai about the fall 2022 issue of The Drake Magazine. And we've made it to the features, which is kind of the main course, the entree of the magazine. And this first feature, called Losing Larry, was written by Tom Bai and has to do with the fallout of a tragedy in Oregon. Of course, it is our top story. Tears and heartache the day after yet another mass shooting this time. There's been another mass shooting in America, this time in a community college in Oregon. The central event of the story is that this fishing guide and writer, a man named Larry Levine, became a school teacher at Umpqua Community College in Oregon, and he was killed in the shooting down there. It was the largest mass shooting in Oregon history. Eight students died at, at Larry. And he was a fishing guide on the North Umpqua. And that's why there's a story about him in the Drake. But he's also a writer, and I, I kind of go into that. He had been published in Fly Fisherman and in Greys and in the Drake. I published an essay that he sent to me just a couple months after he was killed. But when I put it in the magazine, I didn't know that he was one of the ones who had been killed. So it became personal for me as well and deeply personal for the people in that community. Larry just was a, you know, I never, I never met him in person. Knew well many of his friends down there from a, my entire lifetime of going down there and, and fishing, including Dave Hall, who's an artist that a lot of people in the fly fishing industry know. He and Larry met in college at University of Oregon. Said so they'd been friends for, for many years. But also just this unique nature of what brought Larry there. I mean, most of the other people there, they're native Oregonians or they came from a logging family or, you know, migrated down from Portland or something. But to have these two guys that both came from LA, both came from money, Larry from Beverly Hills, it was a a much bigger move socially for Larry than I think most anybody else would ever end up down there. And, and his sister goes into that a lot in the story. It's just a, a really amazing tale about a guy that really followed his his dreams there and, and did the whole living in poverty thing that so many fly anglers do and that writers do in trying to make it unfortunate ending. It's tough to move on from that one, but uh, the next feature is about a dude fishing for muskies. Spends a year chasing, chasing one, and he guides for them. And if that sounds funny, I know of another friend who I guided with who guided in the Keys for permit for eight or nine years before he ever caught one. You think these guys are expert at catching them, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes they become experts at guiding without ever really having caught one yet themselves. Far better at guiding than catching. But this, what struck me so much about the story, and, and I, I... Honestly, it was, I had it for a year or so before it even hit me 
he's not in a north northern state. He's in North Carolina. But it never says it in the piece. It never but as I'm reading it, I'm just so used to picturing this happening in Wisconsin or Michigan or Minnesota that I just assumed it. But they big muskie do exist in other states and I just thought he did a really great job of maybe because he's not from that area where it's so much a part of the culture that he talks about just how huge the flies are and how difficult and draining it is when you're having to throw these big flies all day. I mean, you can compare it to fishing for steelhead, but if you're fishing for steelhead and you're serious about it, you're probably using a spay rod and spay rods are once you get the technique of casting, it doesn't, it's not tiring. Not like throwing a single handed with a weighted. I mean, I have musky fished all day for multiple days and it is horrendous. It's really hard work. And so it's, uh, I've just thought he did a good job of describing that process. And then also from a guide's perspective. Next piece, we got quite a few pages on the Swift River in Massachusetts, which I've heard legend of. Never been out there. I don't know if you have, but what what does this piece do? Here's how much I knew about it. The first six photos I had, I showed to the writer. And he's like, no, not that Swift River. <laughs> there's, there's like another one in New Hampshire because there's Swift Rivers all over it. I didn't even have the state right. Since then, having reached out to other photographers and things like that, it just, what makes it unique more than anything else is the fact that there are these trails that go along it. And so people stand there and watch you from the looks of it and the sound of it. I mean, they're, they're right behind you there. There's a, a stand of trees or whatever, but they can stand there and watch you do your thing. So you're really being judged by, <laughs> by people passing by who may or may not know anything about fishing whatsoever, but it sounds like there's some good fishing, good hatches, things like that. It's just a unique fishery that's below the largest reservoir in the state of Massachusetts. And We've got the final feature, which is about our favorite topic, the steelhead. Got to have the steelhead feature. Right. And that's by Zach, the same guy who wrote the casting competition. Didn't appreciate that until now. And he's written for me before this, but he's a really good writer. And I read this one first. And I can honestly tell you, I didn't put it together either right away when he sent me the casting thing. But in this story, he talks about getting this cast screwed up and having like a coach tell him to, you know, don't think about overthink it or something like that. Great advice. That is what happens every time I steal headfish. Uh, (laughs) Just like at some point it just all goes to absolute shit. And you just had it. You just had it five minutes ago. And all of a sudden it's like, where'd that go? But it also just does a great job. I think of giving a sense of the Northern California steelhead fishing experience and there are beautiful rivers down there and he does a good job of describing them okay so we're done with the features back to the departments we got city limits which is about the city of cleveland but it's really about freshwater drum which i've caught on bait but i have never attempted to catch on fly this is one of those stories that i've been making this magazine for a long time and i've fished an awful lot of places and i had Maybe I knew freshwater drum existed, but I don't think so. I know that they are compared to, you know, say a croaker along the coast or a black drum that you would catch when you're out red fishing or something. But I had no idea. And these fish are, they get 
you know, 15, 20 pounds. And these are found in the Great Lakes. And any of these cities that are along those shorelines, you could go out and have a great afternoon of catching these things, throwing clousers or whatever. And they're a good sized fish that put up a, a fight. It was something almost entirely new to me. And a lot of it, frankly, is the kinds of lines there are now with that sort of fast sinking tip or even integrated where they you can avoid that big belly that used to be so difficult to detect a strike on. The, the lines really have gotten a lot better. And I'm not saying like over the past 30 years, just like over the past 10 or 12, even on the integrated ones, yeah, four or five years probably. So it's much easier to feel a strike in with some of that equipment. And he also makes a good point about that these fish are, in many other places, very much considered a trash fish because you're, you've grown up with walleye being the king or pike or whatever it is, and that, uh, that they can still be a great sport fish. So we're getting towards the end here. We got the bugs, and we're talking about salmon flies. Tell me what's happening here. Certain salmon fly hatches are disappearing. And I had to go back and look, but I... It was 2009 or 2010, and we ran a story about trying to reintroduce salmon fly on the Logan, I believe it was. It was in Utah for sure, and it just didn't really take for whatever reason. And the writer, Bo, here, he's from down in that area, and he describes the Logan and the Blacksmith Fork, and the Blacksmith Fork River still has them and they're part of the same drainage. It's really bizarre. It's not the only places that's happened, but he also talks about two or three other areas in Utah and then goes into salmon flies disappearing for stretches of the Yellowstone, Clark Fork, down here in Colorado, the Gunnison's. And these are areas where they, they were seen for, you know, as long as anyone can remember. And all of a sudden they're just gone and, and no one can really figure out why there's uh, several tests going on as to what may have caused it in a particular location. Right now, the theory is that it's it's probably a variety of factors, but why they can't take even on reintroduction or something. And then kind of the driver behind the story is that there's a, a couple graduates of University of Montana that started a nonprofit called the Salmon Fly Project. And they're just are really just trying to coordinate all the different research that's been done and try to come up with some sort of answers and, and funding to try to figure it out. Cause it's a, it's a very popular hatch and obviously it brings a lot of people and money to some of these towns, some of them very small towns where these hatches take place. So we'd certainly like to keep them around. You fish salmon fly hatches. Yeah, I have tail end of it on the Deschutes when I was in college and then uh, caught it in Montana, June of 2020. You know, it's not just the trout, it's the birds. The second one would come off the water, the birds would come and just rip the thing apart and take it back to their nest. Like, it's right. a big fucking meal for a lot of species. Oh, for sure. And I have to admit, I I have made fun of those who will travel just to fish the salmon fly hatch because it is fair to say in a lot of those circumstances that you could show up there three weeks later and throw a grasshopper and you'd be just fine. Right. But they, <laughs> that, that it is a, there's just something about the size of this bug, but if it's really happening, there's 150 boats at the takeout. 
I mean, it is just absurd. They're all there because they've got to fish that hatch. And so I felt like it was something that kind of deserved a little bit making fun of. It's like, you don't need to go there for that, you know, but they're, they're, I couldn't imagine them, the hatch not being there. That's heartbreaking. Like you mentioned the Deschutes, it's just fine there. It doesn't seem to have diminished at all. And most cases that still it is, but it's still the case, but upper Madison and there's several rivers in Montana. Like again, those small towns that 150, but that's 300 people dropping a lot of money on fishing there. So hopefully some people will figure that out. I thought of you a lot on the last story, just pike fishing and, and just the nature of it. I know you like Alaska. How do you pronounce it? Inako? Is that how you pronounce it? Inako, yeah. When I was working up in Alaska, the lodge owner lived up in Fairbanks and so did his parents. And I was asking him about his parents about pike fishing. And they're like, oh, you got to go to Inako Flats. And I thought that I had this information all to myself. And then, (laughs) you know, life happens. You never quite coordinate that trip in there. And then... Lo and behold, the backcountry page of the Drake has this great story about how awesome the pike fishing is up in totally hotspotting it. Yeah, everyone's yeah, totally. gonna be running up there. <laughs> I love when I get those. You'd be like, I "Can't believe you exposed." I'm like, "Really? Really? Got a big got a big run on on that river, do you?" It's like sounds like there's about a dozen people a year that even make it up to the yeah. to the river. And and as these guys point out, they're seeing bears and wolves. They're probably never seeing another human being. It's just a very, very remote part of Alaska. I, in the very beginning, when the writer lists the wildlife refuges, it's almost ten million acres. And it, if you ever, if you see that on a map, the size, how much that is, how large of an area that is, it's just such a Alaska thing. I mean, it's just massive. And then the the Iditarod River flowing into it. Who even knew there was an Iditarod River? Flows into the Yukon, which is an enormous river, right? <clears throat> One thing I loved about this piece is that, like, these guys are going and demolishing fish, but they're doing it for science as well in a place that, like, you've never heard of. It's cool to be hearing about, you know, the data preceding the anglers almost. Rarely does it go that way. Exactly. I'm glad you mentioned that because this is one of the few. But he pitched the story beforehand, and he's not really a writer, but I thought the same thing you did. Like, yeah, I'd be curious to see what he finds up there. And the, that muskrat shot, you, it's a terrible shot, and you really can't see the size of it. But he does mention in the story, I mean, that's not a big pike. And that thing eats, that muskrat is half the size of that fish. You can see it sitting in the tray there. It just, just shows how, like, just super, super aggressive fish but I, I agree. They were doing some, you know, work for the state and for some other groups. And it sounds like they went about their business as scientists do, and they're releasing the the large ones and the spawning age ones. And but it was adventurous story that I thought was very interesting and looked like it was a lot of fun fishing. Oh my god, yeah. And then uh, we're off to the permit page. Yeah, final piece. That was something I just I just did. It was kind of um, Bonefish and Tarpon Trust has this gathering every three years, and I knew that that was coming up. And I looked, and I just it was another one of those groups that uh, I was like, "Wow, twenty five years, really!" But that's that's how long they've been around, and it's hard to remember that before that organization, which is based out of Miami, we knew virtually nothing. 
about what bonefish and tarpon and permit did. Didn't know where they live, where they travel to, where they spawn. And a lot of it they still don't know. It's really, really hard to get, get the information. But certain things have been learned over the years. One of my favorites is the decades-long fight between bonefish guides down in Key West and bonefish guides up in Isla Mirada. And one of them saying, oh, our fish are so much bigger and our fish are this, this and that. And those guys down there don't know. It turns out they're the same fish because <laughs> they, they swim up there, up there and back and, and farther. And that was one of the things that no one knew. And they knew even less about permit, but really started to, in the mid-2000s, focusing on permit, not just in Florida, but in, in Cuba and down in other parts of um, Central America and have really learned a lot about and it's kind of, I can't say boring, but it, compared to where tarpon travel, permit are pretty homey. I mean, they'll, they'll, they've tagged some of these fish and the vast majority of them, they'll catch not far from where they tagged them a couple of years earlier. But that's different from where they spawn. And some of the information they've gotten has allowed them to pass legislation or get laws in place in, in Florida that, uh, that protected them on their, on their spawning grounds and things like that. So... Yeah, they've just done an awful lot of really important work over the years. And that's the that's this issue. It's a good one. Thanks, Elliot. And it's the last one before speaking of 25th anniversaries. <laughs> oh, there's a winter one coming. So it'll be the, the fourth one of this year. And it's typically that, you know, the winter issue. So it'll be 22, 23 out December, January, February. And then we get into, yes, the 25th anniversary of the drake <laughs> which is hard to believe keep on keep it on fall is probably my favorite time of year to fish and uh i especially think some of the people that fish for the fishes on the cover feel that way it also happens to be fall steelhead season and stripers and all those sorts of fun fish so i hope people enjoy the issue we should try to get out sometime soon Yes, Elliot, I think I need to make it back your way. Not for the next five months, you don't. No, I know. I'm just trying to come up with any idea other than you coming in. Because you always you come to visit for a weekend and then you stay for three months. It's just <laughs> amazing. It's like, it's, I, it might have to do with the steelhead. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, it's you, but, Tom. It's you. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Sure. Thanks for listening. This has been The Drake Cast. <laughs>